And I always remembered my grandfather's words talking about the golden thread that connect all of humanity together. And in, particularly in this modern world that we live in, that, that what we do in one place inevitably has an impact sometimes halfway around the world. Mm. And or often, I should say, halfway around the world. And, um, and that was a powerful image and, and moment for me. And I think a formative moment for really, you know, I could feel my grandfather on my shoulders just telling me, you know, see, I told you so. And, um, and that fascinated me, this idea of this connectivity of, of humanity around the world, both for good and for bad. That's multimedia conservationist Philippe Cousteau Jr., whose family legacy is legendary. His grandfather is iconic oceanographer Jacques Cousteau. His father, marine biologist Philippe Cousteau Sr., and Jacques Cousteau's younger son. But Philippe's upbringing and the driving force behind why he chose to follow in his father and his grandfather's footsteps might be different than what you would expect. Hi everyone, I'm Olympic snowboarder Gretchen Blyler. Welcome to my podcast, The Art of Living Extraordinarily, where I dive deep into the stories of those who have had the courage to blaze their own trails. We learn the deeper motives that drive these individuals, how they face fears, the challenges and obstacles that they've faced, how they get through them, and the biggest lessons that they've learned along the way to living their dreams. Philippe's father was tragically killed in an airplane accident six months before he was born. So he didn't grow up on Calypso and having all of these crazy adventures from birth. He says he had more of a normal upbringing. Besides the fact that the only way he was able to connect with his father was through the films he produced and directed before his untimely death. And the fact that his grandfather was a French icon and someone who was chased down by people asking for his autograph whenever Philippe was able to spend time with him. So even though Philippe was never pressured by his mom to continue the work of his family, adventure and conservation is in Philippe's blood, and destiny knocked on the door when he was 16 in the form of an invitation to join a boat full of scientists on a diving expedition in Papua New Guinea. At an age when Philippe was already soul-searching and wanting to somehow connect more with his father, to understand his past, who he was and where he came from, this adventure was the beginning of the rest of his life and he's been living this lifestyle and legacy of uncovering mysteries and discovering the world ever since. In this episode, Philippe shares the perks and the surprising weight of a big name. But similar to all of the guests who've been on the show, Philippe has made a point of fearlessly throwing himself into uncharted territory, both literally and figuratively. And it's his willingness to say yes and then figure it out along the way, despite his fears, that has led to such a full and adventure-filled life of innovation, education, and inspiration. Also listen in for why he says the core of our global issues that we're facing today, from climate change to war and feeding our world's population, are also ocean issues. Another reason Philippe tirelessly continues to be a voice for our oceans, which he says are a critical system from which we all rely and to this day are still so little understood and enormously undervalued. Before we jump in, a shout out to the sponsors who make this podcast possible. Thank you to Alex Supply Co., which is a sustainable lifestyle company I started with my husband. Alex actually was founded when my husband Chris found himself standing over a sink full of smelly reusable water bottles. Incredibly frustrated because these things are impossible to clean, especially when you put smoothies and lemon water in them like we do. That's when an idea came to him. Let's create a reusable bottle that opens in the middle so you can actually clean it. Makes sense, right? 
Just like that, with one small change, a massive problem was solved. And because we truly believe it's our everyday choices that add up to an extraordinary life, the name Alex stands for Always Live Extraordinarily. Besides Alex Bottle, we've recently released some other new incredible reusable products to help you live sustainably on the journey towards living your extraordinary. And right now, you can get 20% off on your purchase at alexbottle.com with code GRETCHEN. G-R-E-T-C-H-E-N. This episode is also brought to you by Dragonfly June Kombucha. Dragonfly June is an organic effervescent probiotic tea that is absolutely delicious. My good friend Jacqueline launched this company and her June is handcrafted in the Aspen Roaring Fork Valley in small batches using high quality organic ingredients and local Colorado honey. The difference between June and kombucha is this. Most kombucha is made with black tea and sugar. June is made with green tea and honey. So no cane sugar and you get all the health benefits of green tea and honey in addition to the healthy acids and probiotics from the June kombucha. Not only that, but drinking June helps to support your local bee populations and helps keep our local beekeepers in business. Dragonfly June's flavors are composed of organic fair trade and ethically harvested tea, organic herbs, filtered Rocky Mountain water, and local honey. So there is so much love and intention put into this delicious drink that is not only good for you, but it's good for our earth too. Drink June and be well. Check it out at dragonflyjune.com, and June is spelled J-U-N. And if you live in the Aspen Roaring Fork Valley, look for it on the shelves at Natural Grocers, Clark's Market, and local Aspen retail outlets. Now for Philippe Cousteau. Let's just get started with the obvious. Cousteau, every single person on the world, I think, knows the name Cousteau. Um, it's iconic and legendary and prestigious. And what what was it like growing up uh, as a Cousteau? <laughs> well, you know that's a that's a great question, and and I'll say I'm I'm thrilled to to chat with you today, Gretchen. You know the um, um, the story of of all of that is is maybe perhaps a little bit different than what a lot of people might think. Um, you know, my father was Philippe Cousteau Sr. He was the younger son of Jacques Cousteau, my grandfather. And he uh, tragically died in an airplane accident six months before I was born. Uh, my mother was, or is, I should say, uh, American and uh, was from Redondo Beach, California. And so we, um, we moved back to Los Angeles when, uh, when I was born. Um, or actually, I was actually born here, uh, where I currently reside as well. And, um, so my life kind of growing up, there was always this knowledge about this amazing French icon. You know, I, I met a few times a year. Um, people were always asking for his autograph and always chasing him down, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but my life wasn't, you know, I didn't grow up, you know, on Calypso and, you know, on these crazy adventures from the time I could remember. Um, so it was a lot more, I think, in many ways, normal than when a lot of people might expect. Um, kind of grew up here the first years of my life in, in California and then moved, spent a little bit of time in France and then, you know, grew up on the East Coast mostly um, and uh, went to university in Scotland. And, and again, there was always this sense, at least when I was little, that, that, that my grandfather was special. And, you know, I grew up watching my father's films because he produced and directed 26 of the ABC series, The Undersea World of Jacques Cousteau with my grandfather and and all of that was terrific, but, but it wasn't this, um, 
you know, this kind of Indiana Jones childhood that I think a lot of people assume. Uh, it wasn't until I got a little bit older, around uh, 15, 16, that I started being able to go on trips and, and, and have adventures and really get a taste of what that legacy means and, um, and, and who, start to really get hooked with, to the idea of that. Was that, who was that with when you started, when you were 15? Was it with your grandfather so went, or... No, I, you know, I never went on an expedition with my grandfather. By the time I was old enough to really do that kind of work, um, I was, my, my grandfather was, was, was getting on in years. He was in his 80s and mm-hmm. wasn't diving really anymore uh, and wasn't really engaged in those kinds of expeditions. So by the time I was uh, 16, I was invited by an amazing woman named Dr. Eugenie Clark, who was a, a pioneer uh, in oceanography and also one of the first women oceanographers uh, in the world. Um, she's affectionately known as the shark lady. Hmm. She passed away a few years ago. Um, but, uh, but we had, you know, uh, an amazing trip. She invited me out to Papua New Guinea to dive on, uh, on reefs out there where uh, uh, she'd been doing research on certain species of fish. And so I got to spend two weeks on a boat with her and a bunch of scientists and we were diving every day and doing scientific observations. And it was in one of the most remote places in the world. Wow. And we, you know, we would be trading with locals that would come up to us and dug out canoes and who lived in small little, you know, villages on these remote islands. Um, and uh, and it, that was a real sense of, you know, in the thick of it, adventure and a taste of what my father and grandfather did for so long. And I was hooked um, from that point on. Did, were you, um, had you been diving before that trip? Did you grow up diving? Yeah. So the diving part was certainly something that I grew up with. Um, I, uh, started diving since I can remember, uh, my mother certainly, you know, we had friends who were friends of my father's and, and folks who, who were crew on the, on the Cousteau expeditions that, that we would see and, you know, on vacation and things like that, that would take me diving in the South of France when we'd go and visit them, things like that. But, uh, um, uh, so I, I was you know, engaged in, in scuba diving in the ocean from a young age. I, I think a lot of people might think that it would be obvious for you to be living the life that you're living as an advocate and a filmmaker and an adventurer and an explorer. But at the same time, you know, everybody has choices and you could have done something totally different than your family legacy. Um, so is that a trip that kind of inspired you to want to follow in the footsteps of your father and grandfather? Yeah, I, you know, I, um, my mother never pressured us to necessarily follow in the footsteps of what my father or grandfather did. It was really experiences like the one I had with Jeannie Clark when I was 16 uh, in Papua New Guinea and experiences subsequent to that traveling to Bermuda with this amazing guy, Teddy Tucker, who was, you know, a famous wreck diver and explorer who worked with my father and getting to meet these, you know, these, these salty, crusty people who spent their life on the ocean exploring and, you know, and, and peeling back the, you know, the, the veil of, of mystery that exists still to this day. You know, we, we, even, even today in, in this day and age, we think of uh, uh, Google and we think we've kind of figured everything out and know everything, uh, but there's still a lot to discover. And, uh, and certainly back in the, you know, in the mid-90s when I started on these adventures, um, you know, the, before the Internet, before all of that, there was just still 
so much mystery around the world. And to work with these folks that have dedicated their lives to, to uncovering those mysteries and exploring the world is what really what inspired me. Uh, I think I had the, the groundwork, the foundation there already because of the stories from my father, my grandfather. And, and, um, but it was really the experiences that I had with, with those folks who were uh, friends of friends of the family and, you know, inspired by my grandfather in their own right. Um, that really then inspired me. And, uh, and, you know, I, I will say too, that, that as I got into my adolescence and, and, you know, a guy hits puberty and he's a teenager and you really start to wonder where you come from. And that's a tough time not to have a dad. Mm-hmm. And, um, so I think there was a certain degree of, of around that age of a desire to try and connect with him and connect with that past in whatever way that I could to understand not just about him, but about myself mm-hmm. and w- who I was and where I came from. Uh, again, as I said, you know, we saw my grandfather a few times a year and he was a great influence on me, but I'd never really, really got to know him. Yeah. Um, in, in the way that, you know, we didn't all have, you know, holidays together and we'd, you know, all hang out and, and spend, you know, weeks, you know, and we'd sit on the couch and read stories at night. I mean, we didn't do that kind of thing that you kind of imagine with a, you know, big happy family. Um, cause he was a busy guy. He traveled all over the world and we right. saw him, you know, for dinner a couple times a year. So I think there was a certain degree of soul searching and identity searching for me that that went on around that same time of wanting to go on these adventures to to connect with my father in some way shape or form so that may have been a driving force uh mm-hmm. for me to to at least want to test the waters of this lifestyle and this work um, but i was hooked uh you know one story in particular when we were in papua new guinea i remember um i was in uh, uh in in the highlands of papua new guinea and uh, this is a super remote part of the world. So for the first two weeks we were diving, we were doing research, and then I took about four days to go up to the highlands um, where there's these, uh, a, a culture called the Huli Wigmen. And um, these people were really not even contacted by Western civilization until the 60s, 70s. Some of them, even into the 90s, had never wow. seen, um, uh, and beyond actually, had never seen you know, Western folks. And so I had an opportunity to go up and, and, uh, and visit a small little lodge and, and work with some guides and, and kind of visit with these people for, for a couple of days. And um, here we are in, in one of the remote, part, remote parts of the world. Uh, you know, these people live in grass huts. They don't have the kind of modern conveniences that you and I take for granted every day. Mm-hmm. A rich culture, but, you know, none of the technology, et cetera. And... Um, they still hunt with bow and arrow and spears in the forest. Oh uh, they wear grass skirts and they have, you know, uh, literally they have feathers or depending on which part of the tribe, feathers or boar tusks uh, in their noses and these ornate headdresses. And it's a whole thing. Um, and so uh, it, w- it was incredible to, to, to see that. And, um, and I was one day walking down this dirt path and walking towards me were, was a group of uh, Huli Wigmen who'd just been in the forest uh, hunting. And um, there were several older gentlemen that were walking towards me and they had the grass skirts on and the bow and arrow and the spear and um, they passed us. And there was probably about seven or eight of them. And it was in descending order of age and, and, and seniority. So at the back were the younger people, young, younger men. Hmm. And um, I remember seeing this young man at the very back of the group, he must've been around my age. He had grass skirt on. He was barefoot. He had a, had a bow and arrow in his hands and a spear. And, 
and um, but he was wearing a Lakers T-shirt, <laughs> and and I couldn't believe it. And I remember being struck by this because here we were in, in literally one of the most remote places in the world with a tribe that that is you know on the edge of civilization, and still somehow there was a Lakers T-shirt that that someone had given him, and. Um, and I always remembered my grandfather's words talking about the golden threads that connect all of humanity together. And in particularly in this modern world that we live in, that, that what we do in one place inevitably has an impact sometimes halfway around the world mm. and or often I should say halfway around the world. And, um, and that was a powerful image and, and moment for me. And I think a formative moment for really, you know, I could feel my grandfather on my shoulders just telling me, you know, see, I told you so. And, um, and that fascinated me, this idea of this connectivity of, of humanity around the world, both for good and for bad, um, and, and uh, was, I think, one of those moments that, that kind of helps you, helps guide you on your, on your path in life, because it's, a, it's like an aha moment that, uh, that wow, that, um, there's really this connectivity, and, and I want to know more, I want to understand about that more. Um, and that was uh, certainly an inspiring one. Wow, what a cool story. What was your, I mean, do you remember, did, did you have an initial reaction to that Lakers shirt? Like, I was like just a, dumbfounded. <laughs> like, I mean, was I, it I disappointing? Just stood there looking at it. I or, it. I, because it's so kind of romantic to, to be where you were in this ancient <laughs> culture and native people and then and then you're like a Lakers shirt <laughs> I don't know I think that might have been my reaction did you have something like that I, 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 I did I just kind of stopped and was just looking at him he smiled at me as he walked by and I you know I didn't want to make a big deal about anything um, but in my mind I was going oh my god uh, I just I just had to stand there for a few minutes like thinking and looking around in this jungle and it was just this powerful juxtaposition between yeah Here's, like you said, an ancient culture and, you know, primitive with respect to, you know, their technology and, 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 uh, and then there's, you know, a Lakers shirt uh, right there. It's kind of the epitome of sports culture and kind of pop culture in the United States, right. uh, which seemed at, the, at that point a world away. Uh, so it, it, it did snap me back into reality for a second there as you're, you know, a couple of days, you know, immersed in this forest um, to see that. But uh, again, it was, a, it was a powerful reminder um, that, that we all have, you know, impacts on the world around us mm -hmm. and, uh, and that thus we have a responsibility to, you know, to recognize that and to act accordingly. So, um, you know, that was inspiring. And, and, you know, later when I flew back down to, um, to Port Moresby, which is the capital of Papua New Guinea, another, I just remembered another kind of formative experience for me was, um, was uh, uh, the fact that, that at the time, and still today it's a pretty rough town, but at the time in particular, we were warned by the um, State Department. The State Department had a blanket kind of general warning not to go to Port Moresby, and if you did, to stay in your hotel and not leave except to go to the airport because um, there were what was referred to as, as a pretty harmless-sounding name, uh, rascals were these bands of, of gangs, hmm. um, that kind of roamed the city, but, uh, they were notorious for, uh, seeing Westerners and essentially just mugging you, but killing you to take your stuff. Like they didn't argue. They just 
This was the warning on the State oh, Department wow. thing. They just kill people and then take their stuff. They don't, like, say, give me your stuff. They just kill you first and then take it. <sighs> so um, there was a pretty strong warning not to leave the hotel. Of course, yeah. at 16 years old, you know, uh, like, oh, that a 16-year-old makes all, <laughs> all the best choices. I did that, you know. Uh, I didn't, and I decided to leave the hotel because, of course, I'm invincible and it's not going to happen to me. Right. So, because um, I was there for a couple of days in, in, in transit and bored. Uh, so I wanted to go walk around, and I did. And I remember I made it to this little place uh, with a friend of mine uh, to, to have some lunch and, and walk around some shops and things. And, and then I was walking back through these, you know, these kind of abandoned streets back towards the hotel. And I turned around the corner, and there was a group of three guys sitting on a park bench. And I remember stopping, Steve, my friend Steve and I both stopped and looked over at them. And, um, and they looked at us and there was this unspoken understanding that they were predators and we were prey. Hmm. And so we started to walk away quickly and they got up and started coming after us. And so we started running and, um, and I'm just thinking to myself, wow, this is it. Like I'm 16 and, and this could be the end. I wasn't expecting that, but okay, that's not great. Um, and uh, and you know, my heart's beating, and, and we're really terrified. Uh, and we ran around a corner on the street and literally almost bumped into three police officers. And, and at the time, I don't know now, I haven't been back since, but um, at the time, you know, each of these guys had a, had a shotgun on one shoulder um, and then, you know, big pistols in there. Wow. in their uh, holsters um, and the guys chasing us stopped in the middle of the street and looked at us, looked at the cops, the cops looked at us and looked at the guys and the guys that had been chasing us just calmly turned around and walked away. <laughs> and um, the cops looked at us again, all unspoken. The cops looked at us and said, boy, you guys are lucky. And we were <laughs> like, Oh my God. And we just ran back to the hotel. And um, um, I really, felt like I saw my short at the time, short life flashing before my eyes. And I got back to the hotel and as scary and wild as it was, I was like, Oh my God, that was amazing. Right. It's those kind of life affirming moments where (laughs) you, you feel like, uh, you're, um, living on the edge that sometimes really help remind you that, uh, uh, life is precious and you should live it to the fullest. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, it was this whole mix of, of experiences of, of, of emotions on that trip that really set me on my path. Wow. You are a multi-Emmy-nominated TV host and producer. You're an author. You're a speaker. You're a social entrepreneur. You're a philanthropist. How did you get started, I guess, in the, t- like in the TV work that you do? Um, I'm sure a lot of people would think, oh, it's easy. You're Philippe Cousteau. You probably could do whatever you want. But, you know, I- I'm-, I'm sure it didn't work that way. I'm sure you had to really forge your way in this world? You know, it was actually less by plan uh, than by, um, uh, than just by fate, I think, in many ways. I, you know, when I went to university, uh, I studied history. And I did that very specifically because I felt like if I wanted to be a storyteller and, and somebody who could tell a story and inspire people and and try and try and connect them with the world around them. I had to understand people and humanity. And I felt the best way to do that was to study history because I was able to study the history of economics and the history of the environment, history of war, history of politics, history of you know, culture. Um, and uh, so when I got out of university, 
I had, um, um, I had the, the opportunity to start a nonprofit uh, with my sister in honor of my father. Um, now, right around when I started university, my grandfather passed away. And I never, um, you know, a lot of people, as you said, assumed that, uh, you know, Cousteau and, and just, you know, it would have been easy and just wouldn't have been able to get into television and do all these different things. When in fact, um, you know, when my grandfather passed away, uh, he didn't leave us anything except, uh, unfortunately, his second wife engaged in, um, in a legal uh, battle with us. Oh, wow. And so, um, you know, I, uh, I didn't even get so much as a photograph when my grandfather died. Wow. Didn't inherit money, didn't inherit all those things that everybody assumes we did. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, his second wife uh, engaged in a, in a legal process. I won't go into depth or detail with it, but uh, essentially it was, it was arguing that um, we, uh, you know, she had the ownership of the, the Cousteau and, and all of those, uh, that legacy and that we should uh, uh, not be, you know, necessarily pursuing that, um, that, uh, uh, work and that course wow. of work. And, uh, it was, it was, it was pretty ugly. It was Philippe, not fun. Don't go do good for the world. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, I said, exactly. Philippe, exactly don't go said. out and they, do they, good in the world. You know, we own that. Yeah. You know, the, it was, it was pretty much, um, so, you know, without going into detail and, and boring everybody, it was, it was a pretty un, un upsetting and, and difficult period yeah. for a couple of years while we were fighting this, we were living in a beach shack in, in Southern Florida. Um, where we had opened offices for the nonprofit. And when I say beach shack, I mean, it was about a thousand bucks a month and it was two bedroom and it was uh, uh, three of us, my sister, my mother, and myself. Um, and uh, it was really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, it's hard to raise money when, when people are, you know, pursuing you in court and all this other stuff. Um, wow. And so, you know, we had a nonprofit and we just struggled for, for quite a while, actually. Um, and, you know, our focus was really to build a nonprofit that honored my father's legacy and what he was focused on, which had, had largely been forgotten. The nonprofit that you're talking about, it's Earth Echo yes, International? Yes, that, that is what is now Earth Echo. Okay. That's right. That's the same organization as, you know, that we've had for uh, 15 years now. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, at the time, we were a small little group in, in Florida. We'd started in honor of my father, and it was really tough. Um, to kind of, you know, focus and, and make all that happen um, uh, in, in light of what was going on with uh, my grandfather's second wife and her belief that um, we were infringing on certain trademarks and rights that she had mm-hmm. So, um, in, in, by doing this work. So we spent two years engaged in that kind of whole process. And at the end of it, um, you know, we, we had very little to show for it financially or anything else. Let's put it that way. Um, and it was really hard. And, uh, so we found, you know, we slowly over the course of a year found a couple of folks that believed in our vision for education and the environment and uh, particularly in Florida and, and supported us, uh, uh, with grants and donations to, uh, Earth Echo. And, um, we were able to do a large scale, um, statewide, uh, Everglades education program in partnership with public schools. And, um, as part of that, I filmed a 30 minute um, documentary about the Everglades that I wrote, produced, got a production company to put together. I had no experience in film or television, Gretchen. Um, I just had grown up with my father's films and reading his books and my grandfather's films and looking at the format and how they were written, how they were put together and essentially just winged it. 
Um, and we were nominated for an education award and it was amazing. We got, you know, the South Florida water management district to donate days of helicopter time and camera people to donate their time. And, and we did this 30 minute documentary that went to schools around Florida and, um, it was a really big success and that mm-hmm. was terrific and really exciting. And it was my first experience of utilizing, uh, media and, uh, you know, film as a storytelling mm-hmm. uh, technique and uh, medium, I should say. And so I was uh, really interested in that, but again, was not really anticipating or interested in like a career in television at that point. I really saw it as a, as a tool in the nonprofit space. We could tell some stories and do some things. Um, but one thing led to another and I met uh, through a mutual friend, some folks that work at animal planet and about a year, year and a half later, they invited me. Um, we had moved up to Washington DC at this point and they invited me into the discovery headquarters in Silver Spring, Maryland, and they said, hey, we're working on a special doc with uh, Steve Irwin. Uh, would you be interested in co-hosting it with him? And I was mm. like, uh, I guess. <laughs> sure. I had never done television before, so to speak. I'd just done the 30-minute the piece um, for, uh, for Earth Echo and a couple little spots here and there down there in Florida. Um, but I said, yeah, why not? Because I learned pretty early on that you, know, you can always say no later. Yeah. But you should always say yes in the beginning, right? If you say no right up front, you say, well, I don't know. No, I'm not going to be interested. And you walk away from something. Then all the opportunity that could come of that is lost. And, yeah. um, and so I, I really was well, believed in, believe in the mantra of saying, no, saying yes and then, you know, working it out or, you know, walking away when, when it doesn't work out. Yeah. So I said yes. And, uh, and then I ended, when, that turned into a, a whole thing that got me kind of into television. So again, it was all kind of by happenstance and, and not really like a, a plan that I set out to pursue. That's cool. Were you um, like kind of just touching back on, on what you just mentioned about always say yes first and, and then figure it out? I think it's such a great piece of advice and I think it's something that a lot of people talk about, but to actually live it and to do it. Like, what does that actually mean? I mean, were you nervous? Were you scared to, you'd never really done TV work before and here you're going to co-host with Steve Irwin. <laughs> like, yeah. do you know what I yeah, mean? Terrifying. Like, what did it take uh, to actually terrifying. do it? Yeah. Terrifying. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, we just moved to Washington DC and Earth Echo was, was starting to grow. And, um, you know, we had our, uh, I don't know if we had even had our first employee at that time. So I was doing everything from like, you know, mailing stuff and printing stuff out to like, you know, running board meetings to, you know, writing grants to trying to figure out how to raise money and, and, uh, meeting people and, you know, coming up with projects and programs and, and all this stuff at the time. And then all of a sudden, you know, Animal Planet has invited me to, to co-host a show with Steve Irwin. And, um, that was, uh, that was pretty amazing, but I think they were impressed with what I'd done down in Florida and that I, you know, and, and I, and I feel like they knew, you know, when they learned the backstory that I, I, from scratch, just somehow finagled people to donate the time and put the show together and written it and produced it and directed it and been in it. Um, they were like, wow, there's, you know, there's something real here. And so, um, they gave me, you know, a shot. Now, certainly the name Cousteau was, 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 uh, intriguing to them. And what I've found is, is, you know, that, that, that name can open a lot of doors. Um, but in life you pay for everything, as you know, Gretchen, and, um, those doors come with a lot of expectations and even perhaps heightened expectations than, than normal and are very fast to, to slam in your face if you don't meet those higher expectations. And yeah. so there's always a lot of pressure associated with that for me. And, and, um, so I think they looked at, at the combination of, of 
the success I'd had in Florida on, on just producing and doing things for Earth Echo. And then um, um, I think the combination with the name. So yeah, so they offered me the opportunity to work with Steve. I did. Um, and that turned into a whole other uh, life experience that, um, that, uh, that certainly had an influence on me and, and a tragedy that, that, that occurred while we were filming that. But, uh, but yeah, the TV and long and short to answer your question, the, the, the TV thing was kind of just happened. Um, and it happened because as you pointed out, I embraced opportunities and I said, you know, yes to everything that came along and then I made it work. Yeah. You're, it seems you are not afraid to make it work. Um, and I think that's, that's like, in this podcast, every interview that I've done so far, every single person is the type of person that will do 100%, 120% to, you know, follow this dream or follow this path. There is a lot of work that goes in. And even having the the mindset of, I mean, like you explained, I mean, you're not just coming up with the ideas for these adventures. You're coming up with, you know, funding it and figuring out where this content is going to go and producing it and starring in it. I mean, not too many people can do that. Are there also days where you're like, man, I just wish I could work a regular job and clock in and clock out? Um do you, does that ever all the run time. Yeah. <laughs> all the time you know I, because here's the thing is that is that um um i think it's particularly in the beginning a big part of us getting involved in in various different things and being like yeah i can do a 30 minute uh doc about the everglades how hard can it be right. <laughs> is that youthful naivete that, uh, that, you know, that, that, that you don't know the meaning of the word no when you're young. And that's, right. you know, we're seeing that right now. I think it's very relevant as we're seeing with, you know, this awakening of young people around the country, um, that, uh, you know, about these issues that are like, why can't we change the world? Absolutely. We mm. can do something about this. Uh, I think no. And, and the idea of the impossible is something that's beat into you, uh, as you get older. And so, mm. you know, pursuing that all those kinds of opportunities was, was naivete. Now with my, with my, the, 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 not just the years, but the mileage, um, the, uh, you know, looking back at some of those things and what I know now, I'd be like, wow, I don't know if, if, you know, I, I clearly got engaged in that because I didn't know what I was getting myself into. And, um, um, and I look back and I'm like, wow, sometimes it would just be easier to punch in and punch out and not have all these people relying on you and, you know, and, and the responsibility that comes with all of that. Um, and, uh, but those are usually in the, in the hard times when you're, you know, when you don't get a grant and you're, you know, there's been many times when, particularly around the financial crisis, when as a nonprofit, you know, you're, you're, you're months away from, from running out of cash and, you know, your, your things are hinging on the next round of grants coming in and, you know, you're stressed out and you're not sleeping. You're just going, why am I doing all of this? But, mm -hmm. uh, but that's, I think a, a minority of the amount of time, uh, yeah. that we're thinking about this, those kinds of things, the rest mm -hmm. of the time I'm thinking to myself, wow, this is a real amazing opportunity. And, and, um, um, why would I want to do anything else? I'm my own boss and, and I have the opportunity to, to really help people and engage with people and explore the world and particularly the, the work we do through effect work with young people. So I think the, the, the reward outweighs the, the cost, but, um, there is a cost for sure. There's mm -hmm. a cost that weighs on you in the TV work you do and the nonprofit and the books you've written, have you found 
like a common purpose within all of the work that you do that sort of like drives you and inspires you during those times when it is hard and you're running out of money and you're not sleeping? Yeah, the, uh, you know, I always tell people, so Earth Echo International is the nonprofit that, that I founded 15 years ago, and we've become one of the leading youth environmental education groups in the country. And, and I think of, of all my work, um, it's really some of the most fulfilling because, you know, we spend a lot of time with young people and working with young people and teachers. And, uh, you know, I, I, I get a lot of letters and notes from folks coming up to me and saying, wow, you know, this was so inspiring for my students and my kids got so engaged and thank you so much for, for everything that Earthek has done for them and blah, blah, blah. And, and I, and I always chuckle because I'm always thinking to myself, I feel like I get a heck of a lot more out of it than, than they do. Hmm. Um, because at those times when I am, sad or depressed or, you know, looking at the world and the challenges that we face, which seem to grow with by the day, uh, I just have to walk into a classroom or into an auditorium and see the passion and the excitement and the, the, the willingness to, 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 to not take no for an answer. Um, the, 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 the desire to, to change the world and to go out and fight for a better tomorrow that exists in, in so many of these young people and every single one of these young people, in fact, I should say, mm-hmm. um, the fire in their eyes when they look at, at the challenges that we're facing and they want to do something about it. Um, that optimism, that drive, that determination inspires me and keeps me going. And I just have to think about, you know, how excited they are and how engaged they are in the world. Um, and I think to myself, wow, like, we need to keep soldiering on and, and fighting for, uh, for a better world because I can't let them down. Mm-hmm. Um, they, uh, you know, they, they, they're the ones that inspire me. On that note, with, with all of the work that you do and the things that you've seen, what are you most concerned about? Wow. I mean, there's so many things, um, you know, first and foremost, I'm concerned about the oceans. And when I say that, you know, people might expect me to say that. Um, certainly the oceans is, is the core to who we are as, as a family and, and, and been our uh, purpose for so long, for, for three generations now. But I say that because when we talk about climate change, when we talk about uh, ocean acidification or, or when we talk about uh, um, feeding people, uh, so many of the big kind of global issues that we're facing, um, they are at their core ocean issues. Um, you know, and, and unfortunately the oceans get short shrift, uh, in, in the global debate and dialogue because, you know, climate change is an ocean problem. Um, and, uh, and while that is something that looms large, uh, it is a, a challenge because it's the oceans that regulate our climate. Um, the oceans that, that feed over a billion people, their primary source of protein, and increasingly more and more as, you know, as we see two billion people um, uh, coming onto this planet in the next, you know, 30 years, primarily in coastal areas and primarily in areas uh, of poverty. And so, you know, when we look at, at uh, I think, a lot of the problems that we face today, fundamentally, they come back to our oceans. And I'll give you one, one example. Um, We've all heard about the piracy crisis in the Gulf of Aden uh, over the last 15 or so years. And uh, there was that movie um, with Tom Hanks, right, mm-hmm. that was all about that. Yeah. Um, and so 
this is a, a crisis that has impacted uh, countless lives. Um, you know, thousands of people have suffered and died because of this crisis, uh, the piracy that's going on in the Southern Red Sea. Uh, it's impacted global commerce because up to 20% of global commerce passes through the Suez Canal, passes through the Red Sea. Um, it has cost us somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 to $100 billion a year in um, security of putting out uh, warships and, uh, and other uh, from nations all over the world to escort ships through the Red Sea. Um, so it has cost an incredible amount of money, uh, time and suffering and death over the last 15 years, um, this, this, uh, this issue. And yet what a lot of people don't realize when they talk about it is that fundamentally it's an ocean problem. Hmm. And what do I mean by that? Well, about 15 or 20 years ago, off the coast of Somalia, as the state of Somalia was, was in crisis, um, they were unable to enforce their fisheries and the protection of their traditional fishing areas off the coast. In, therefore, uh, countries, uh, uh, fishing vessels from the EU, China, Russia, other countries were illegally fishing off their waters. So what happened is the, the fishermen who had subsisted off these fisheries for millennia armed themselves to fight off the, the illegal fishing boats. They then hijacked a few of them um, because they were e in their waters illegally. And they took them over, I should say. Uh, they got ransom money in return for, for those, those ships. And a light bulb went off. And all of a sudden, this started to become an industry. And as there became more money involved, organized crime and terrorist organizations began to get involved, groups like Al-Shabaab, Al-Qaeda in the Maghreb. And so what you saw was this, what was initially a fisheries problem, become this global crisis that has then funded terrorist organizations, destabilized the entire region, uh, cost hundreds of billions of dollars of global commerce, probably over a trillion now. And all of that could have been avoided with a few million dollars of fisheries conservation. All of it. And so, again, that's a great example. Another example of, of ocean problems when we think about the crisis in Syria, the terrible tragedies that have happened there over the last eight or so years of the Civil War, the million people that have emigrated into, uh, uh, migrated into Europe, uh, destabilizing the entire geopolitical uh, kind of system, the impacts we're feeling here in the United States, certainly in nations around Europe, like impacts and contributing to, you know, sentiments around Brexit, etc. Um, those people left Syria and the conflict of Syria, and one of the core root causes of the conflict in Syria was drought, extreme drought, mm -hmm. um, driven by climate change. And the migration of people out of uh, the countryside in Syria into cities, which were not able to support them with jobs or housing or opportunity, and thus um, the, the protesting of people, the crackdown by the Syrian government, um, and it snowballed. And so, you know, there's a lot of complex forces at work here, and it's not the only contributing factor, but it is certainly a primary contributing factor to the destabilization of that region, and thus the destabilization of Europe, United States, and other countries around the world in response to the migration of those million people. And so again, we go back to so many of the issues that we face in the world today 
are related to the oceans uh, and have their core root causes in the oceans because the oceans drive our climate. So as our oceans decline, as ocean acidification, as warming ocean temperatures uh, cause coral reefs to collapse, as overfishing is laying waste, you know, 90% of our fisheries in the world are at capacity or overfished. Um, as we see trash and waste, everything from the plastics, which dominate the headlines today, to uh, traditional pollution that continues to create dead zones, um, like the one that, that, that is in the Gulf of Mexico every year, um, where no life can exist because of, uh, of, of pollution. Um, the oceans are, are, are in real trouble. And as the oceans go, so goes humanity because they're the life support system of this planet. And so I continue to, to I think the, the biggest issues that I'm worried about are, are the oceans and in particular how we don't, I think, give enough importance and enough attention to the oceans as a critical uh, system uh, upon which we all rely. Mm-hmm. On the flip side, um, what are you seeing that makes you the most optimistic? The fact that when I walk into a classroom, there aren't any climate deniers, hmm. no matter where I go. The fact that when I walk into a classroom, kids are not asking about whether or not we should do something, mm-hmm. whether or not it's an acceptable uh, uh, trade-off to you know, control emissions and uh, uh, what, what that's going to do to the economy. All of them are simply asking, why aren't we doing more and how can we get engaged and do more? Um, we're dealing with a generation here that because of their social media have friends all over the world that have a global perspective Mm -hmm. and recognize that unlike certain people, um, politicians and others in our, in our, in certain parts of our community in this country who open the window and flippantly declare, Oh, it's a cold February. There's no such thing as climate change. Uh Um, Mm They understand the connectivity. They understand that, uh, uh, as I learned that fateful day in Papua New Guinea, um, that everything is connected in a way that I don't think any generation before them has ever truly appreciated. And that gives me hope. Um, they're more engaged than any generation before them. And, uh, and they recognize that uh, this, this lie that is peddled by certain sectors of our society, that protecting the environment means that we have to sacrifice our economy or you know, sacrifice our jobs or you know, opportunity for people, um, they know that is a lie. And, uh, and, and they recognize that the source of opportunity and the source of purpose and the source of a better tomorrow for all of us is actually protecting the environment and protecting those systems that keep us alive and finding ways in innovation and business and industry um, to do that, to have that uh, work together. So I think that, you know, fundamentally, um, young people will give me hope and, and the fact that they are so engaged and we're seeing changes and we're seeing uh, industry respond to them um, we're seeing uh, uh, new businesses and, and old businesses alike creating, changing products, thinking about how they support climate change. I mean, um, legislation and, and action on these issues. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's exciting to see the, uh, I think the groundswell of, uh, of, of desire for change in this world. And I think that there is a, a generation of politicians and a generation of people um, who, uh, who are, whose time is rapidly uh, running out mm-hmm. for their obstruction of progress on these issues. And that's exciting to me. When, when these kids, and I'm sure everyone asks you this question, but um, when people say, I can't believe we're not doing more, what can we do um, 
to do more. What What do you say? Well, as we, you know, as we've seen, uh, my I, I give two pieces of advice to young people, and the first one is, and this might be surprising, but the first one is, don't start a nonprofit. Hmm. Um, you know, I think that nonprofits have a very important role to play. There are plenty of them. Um, my advice is always instead to look at how, if you really want to engage in that kind of work, don't reinvent the wheel, find someone that's really effective and doing great work and collaborate with them or work for that group. Mm. Um, don't go and start your own. The second advice that I give, um, as a corollary to that is instead look for opportunities in business, uh, in industry and innovation to solve these problems. Um, the systems in which you live, the energy systems have to change, the, 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 the food systems have to change, the uh, manufacturing systems have to change, um, and that's driven by innovation. And so that's where, what excites me, and that's where I think the, the real opportunities for sustainability are. So that's, that's really key advice that I, that I give to young people um, is, uh, is to engage in being part of the solution in, in innovative new ways. Um, I think, you know, personally, you know, Earth Echo, and again, I think that, that you know, the reason we started Earth Echo is because we looked at, uh, at the world around us and we felt that there, there wasn't a lot of environmental education out there. So we did feel that, that we were not reinventing the wheel, that, that there was an important niche to be filled that we could contribute to. But um, in most instances, you know, there's, there's a nonprofit out there for almost everything. And, um, and, and so try not to reinvent the wheel. Right. We need more collaboration. Exactly. Exactly. There's, you know, there's such a limited amount of resources out there for nonprofits that, that spreading it even thinner is not necessarily the answer. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, you know, nonprofits, there's about $100 billion worth of charitable giving in the United States every year. And in the United States is the most charitable country, even adjusted for GDP on the planet. Americans are the more, most generous. Um, nevertheless, U.S. financial markets are worth $35 trillion. So we need to be at that table. We need to be at, at a table of, of, of business and innovation. Mm-hmm. Um, like, like, look at what Elon Musk has been able to do with Tesla. Mm-hmm. That's a great example. Um, you know, it's building a business that really pioneered and showed the world that electric cars can be the best cars in the world. I know it just so happens that they're electric. Right. Um, changed everything in the face of decades of nonprofits trying to get us to move off of oil Hmm. and gas into electrics. He was able to transform the industry in business. So I think that's, that's, that's an important lesson for us all um, to think about how we, we change the world. There's a lot of different ways to do it. It's not just through, uh, through nonprofits. Well, and so you've been a part of that idea as well. Um, I don't know where it is now, so maybe you can talk about this, but you created an investment fund that seemed mm-hmm. really innovative, leveraging Wall Street <laughs> of all places to bring this idea of business and the environment together. Can you talk can you talk about this fund that you started and where of course, it is now? Uh, you know, we started a, a, a fund. It's actually um, we it was operating for about 6 years um, we were real pioneers. It was great. It was a lot of fun. We, it was an exchange traded fund that we launched on the New York stock exchange. Goodness, about six or seven years ago. And, uh, um, 
it was really exciting because it was the first of its kind. And uh, since then, subsequently, a lot of the much bigger investment firms have, have piled in with ETFs with sustainable kind of mandates. But we were the first exchange-traded fund in the New York Stock Exchange with a sustainable mandate that was fossil fuel free. And um, because what we realized was that a lot of people who believe in doing good um, have an opportunity not just to donate to nonprofits, but also to think about how they invest their money. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of us would be surprised if we have investments, you know, mutual funds and things like that, that um, where our money is invested. And so we wanted to provide an opportunity for folks to um, both be charitable if they choose to be, but then also to make money um, and, you know, invest in companies that that, um, that are really part of the solution. And um, so that was a, a foray into financial markets because I realized what, what I just talked about, which is, you know, we need to find new and innovative ways to engage in solving problems. And a percentage of the management fee of, uh, of the investment fund supported a, a foundation. And then uh, that foundation, we gave all the money away to, uh, uh, in this instance, it ended up all going to, a, to over the years to a, to, a charitable, to a hospital in eastern Congo, um, the Pansy Hospital, which is just an amazing place. Uh, and the reason we did that is because, you know, my grandfather always said the key to solving environmental problems is to solving human problems. And I should, I should add the corollary to that is the key to solving human problems is to focus on women mm-hmm. and girls. And uh, we realized as we looked around and we were working with the Clinton Global Initiative at the time that um, there is a hospital in eastern Congo. And Congo is the second lungs of the world, second only to Brazil in terms of its rainforest um, and its mitigation of of carbon emissions in the atmosphere. And um, the the stability of Congo impacts, or instability of Congo, impacts the stability or instability of the dozen-plus countries that are around it. Um, And that we felt a real way to help improve the health of the environment and help people um, to do that, to build long-term sustainability in, in human systems is to focus on women and girls. And the, and the data bears that out, right? I mean, we know that, uh, that women are a much better investment uh, than men from a financial perspective, that uh, microcredit programs, you know, women, uh, the, the, the payback on investment is 95 plus percent. Men, it's somewhere in the 70s. We know that um, when women have economic empowerment, they tend to invest that empowerment in improving their communities, in uh, feeding their kids, in education. And men don't always tend to, uh, to choose to invest their income in the most wholesome of ways. Hmm. Um, and so, so my grandfather you know, drilled that into me growing up. And so we decided to support the Pansy Hospital, which is this amazing institution that supports women survivors of sexual violence. Um, and helps them to rebuild their lives and the lives of their children and education and engage in vocation and really help transform communities uh, in, a, in an area of the world that's critical to global stability and critical to environmental and climate change uh, issues. So um, we helped build, uh, we funded the pilot program to build solar panels on the roof of that hospital to get them off of dirty fossil fuel and allow them to keep more of the money that they raise um, to, to, to plow back into the communities in which they work. Um, and so, uh, so I think the fund operated for about six years, six or seven years. Um, and then we just were, you know, small fund, small firm that I worked with. Um, and we, the market became quite crowded with other much larger institutions that were in this world. And so we, we, we retired the fund, um, about a year or two ago. 
Um, but it was an amazing success and it was a terrific foray into the New York stock exchange and the Dow and, you know, and be, you know, being with all these players right. um, and being on the trading floor and being with all these people and showing them that, wow, we can be successful with a sustainable investment fund in the ETF format and others kind of followed suit. And so I, I consider that a tremendous success because we were able to, to kind of pioneer that um, and help all these people in Congo. So that was a great, um, a great, uh, a great adventure that, uh, that really helped, I think, uh, move the needle as well. Great adventure, and it's just, it's such an awesome example of what you were talking about earlier, which is we don't need more nonprofits. We need to get smarter with our existing existing businesses and systems that aren't integrating the health and wellness of the environment and even ourselves into it. Um, and... Yeah. And I, you know, there's been a big movement now in the, in the investment world and we're hearing all about this divestment and all these other things, which personally, I'm not a huge fan of the, the language around that. Um, because, uh, uh but it's, you know, the, 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 the spirit behind it, I think is great. I think one of the challenges, however, as we talk about divestment is that, that it, um, which I, some people may have heard of some of your listeners may have heard of it, My issue with that is that, it kind of follows along with the traditional nonprofit approach, which is don't do that. Stop mm. doing that. Right, right. Do mm. less of that. Divest yourself of that. Mm. We mm. are for so long, you know, the nonprofits, you know, the environmental movement and others in this country have been the, the movement of deprivation, mm. the movement mm. of you're bad, stop doing that. And, um, and that's not the way to engage and inspire people. Right. Um, we always talked about it as the reinvestment movement. Um, instead of saying you're doing this wrong, stop doing that. It was much more about, wow, we should be investing in these things, not these things. Um, it's, it's, you know, and, and when we talk about, you know, solutions in education, we really always are very careful about our language of being like, wow, let's engage in this. Let's vote more, uh, be engaged in your community, do more of this, do more of this. Here's the opportunity, not do less of this you're doing this wrong, you're doing this badly. So, you know, I think we're still in its infancy. Um, sustainable investment is, is, you know, maybe about 10 or 20% of, of, of uh, financial resources are invested in kind of in, in SRI or, or sustainable investing. Um, so it's growing, but I think we have some way, a ways to go. And it's very exciting. My point in that is that um, as we, you know, as you said, as, as we think about, um, getting engaged in these kinds of solutions, there's a lot of room to grow. Um, and that's what I'm always telling young people is like, look for the opportunities and be engaged and think outside the box. Mm -hmm. And and it's also a really powerful message, this idea of, because um, I see it so often and it, it happens to me too, um, being a snowboarder. And um, I mean, I've definitely been on heli trips and people will sort of knock me down and say, you know, you are part of protect our winters and you're going on a heli trip that's so hypocritical and i i think it's so important to to have the message out there that like let's celebrate each other for what we are doing and not knock each other down for what we're not doing and it's not about lack and taking things away we're humans we're meant to create and explore and Quite honestly, I mean, I've experienced people who on their first heli trip, they'll get out into those mountains for the first time and be dropped off on a peak where people are 
there's no other human from thousands and thousands of miles away, and these people become, quote unquote, environmentalists for the rest of their lives. And they're now all of a sudden more conscious of their everyday actions and decisions and how that, you know, those choices affect our planet. Um, so, you know, what well, you, you bring day? up a great point, Gretchen, you're uh -huh. absolutely right. And I think that, you know, there's always, you know, the, it, life is a journey and every day I look around and I think, you know, I could do that better or, you know, I can, I can, you know, maybe we shouldn't, maybe we shouldn't be doing this or that or whatever it may be, but there are certain fundamental systems in our society, like helicopters and planes and that it is what it is. People say that to me. They're like, oh, you fly all over the world. You're not an environmentalist. And I'd be like, well, the alternative would mean to be sitting in a dark room somewhere and have no influence. And mm -hmm. I hope that the balance of the work that, that you do, the work that I do, um, is, is warrants that, uh, you know, that, that cost uh, from an environmental perspective. Because it's not like, uh, you know, we're just going out there uh, 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 for ourselves. We're really using that inspiration and sharing that with others. And I think that's really, really important. You bring up a great point that we should all be supporting each other uh, a little bit more. Um, but like you say, haters going to hate, right? I mean, there are always people that, that, um, that look to, uh, to poke holes in, in others. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, we should be celebrating those and, and indeed always looking for new opportunities to, um, to innovate and always pushing, pushing innovation in, in business. But you know, we have to get on a plane. We have to go do these kinds of things for the work that we do. And, um, but it's for, there's a, there's a greater purpose to it all to inspire people to, to recognize that these systems need to change. Mm -hmm. Um, and we're part of that change, but we live in the world that we live in and mm -hmm. that's just the reality. So we need to accept that. In the line of work that you are in and all of the roles that you play, uh, taking care of yourself must be a big part of that. Um, it's not about just, you know, giving, but you gotta, gotta give back to yourself too. Are there any practices or do you have a daily routine that helps you balance the life that you're living? Not really. I, you know, for me, it's, um, uh, food is really important. Uh, I think just in general, it's always a struggle with all the travel we do. You know, one day we're going to be in, you know, we're in Peru filming like in, in, in the coast, uh, and then we're, you know, get some meetings in New York and then we're off to, you know, film in Bermuda. Um, and then we're, you know, going to be in Fiji and we're going to be in Saudi Arabia and, you know, all sorts of different places. Um, so doing my best to try and eat as healthy as I can is really important. Um, I, what, I never, what is that for you? Eat fast food. Yeah. I never eat fast food. Um, I, I stay away from sodas, stay away from airplane food, which is so full of sodium. I mean, mm. it's awful. Um, I've got a couple of rules like that. I end up bringing a lot of things with me, snacks, stuff like that. Um, you know, a little organic peanut butter or, you know, some, some granola bars, things like that, that, um, that can get me through those periods as opposed to, um, kind of just breaking down and throwing a Big Mac in. Um, that's really important. I think from a health perspective, when you spend so much time in different time zones, traveling, et cetera, the food component is, is really important. Um, and then, you know, exercising, I mean, always try and do something while I'm on the road. If it's just a little routine in the room, um, you know, when I'm home, we work out a lot um, just to try and stay healthy. I think that that really helps you from helps one from getting sick uh, on the road, which uh, which happens a lot. I mean, you're, you know, you're cramped airplanes all over the bloody world, um, staying healthy, eating well, 
I think, uh, you know, it's the old saying, you're only as good as the fuel you put in your engine. And um, so for me, when I have limited options, limited choices, it's about planning ahead and just being really diligent and disciplined about not eating the junk food, the fast food, the sodas and all that stuff um, at, at a minimum. Sounds good. Simple, not easy, <laughs> right? That preparation yeah, part exactly. is so important. Yeah, I mean, important. you know how it is, right? I mean, you've been all yeah. over the world. It's, it's, it's really hard, yeah. um, but it's doable. Yeah. I haven't eaten fast food in 20 years, yeah. um, and, uh, and I'm in some really remote places. So when people are like, oh, I don't have another option at home but to get a Big Mac, I'm like, that's crap. Just you not can true. find other things. <laughs> you, they have to, you just have to prioritize it and plan. But yeah. like, there's always other options out there, no matter where you are in the world. Sometimes four days of beans and rice in the jungle in, in Indonesia, but that's what it is as opposed to, you know, breaking down and, and going and getting uh, fast food at some little shop, you know, along the side of the street. So, uh, which some of my friends have done. And I'll tell you, there are many times when I've been in weird places where people or my crew has been like, Oh man, just lighten up and just have some of this. I'm like, Nope, I'm good. I'm going to stick with the beans and rice. And sure enough, the next day, everybody is sick to their stomach and, uh, you know, from food poisoning. And I'm the one sitting there with a grin on my face being like, I told you so. Um, so uh, Right? But that's so, like yeah, a it's, practice it's in itself, right? Like that takes a lot of willpower. Because um, it's it really easy does. to say, okay, just this one time, I'll do it. But we all know that that idea of just this one time leads to like every day doing the same thing. <laughs> It totally does. The discipline issue is definitely one that's hard to, um, to deal with, but, uh, yeah, we've, I'm pretty good. And I think, you know, it reinforces because the few times that you do break down and you feel like crap the next day and you definitely, your energy sapped and you just like, you realize, Oh my God. Yeah. That's, that's a nice reminder of why I'm as disciplined as I am when it comes to food. Mm-hmm. Okay, last two questions. Um, these are a couple questions that I've been asking everyone. Um, what is your definition of success? You know, for me, definition of success is to leave this world better than than how you found uh, than how you found it. And I and I would say that that means inspiring at least two people, um, and changing, changing their lives and helping two other people to lead a better, more inspired life than yourself. And hopefully that, that, that you can leave the balance of that, um, uh, the balance of, of accounts in the, in the black, so to speak, um, with respect to, to how you consume and what you've, you know, taken away from the world, hopefully, uh, can leave a little bit more than you took behind. So, um, I think that's the, the greatest measure of success for any of us to look back on our lives and be, be proud and say, wow, you know, I, I left the world a better place. Well said. What do you know now that you wish you could tell your younger self? Um, I certainly know just a lot more about the realities of the world. Um, that, uh, that not everybody is, is altruistic and has, uh, has the best interests of others in mind. Mm. Um, you know, we've gotten into some situations, unfortunately, where we really believed in people, um, who've then really turned around and, uh, and, uh, and screwed us. 
Um, and I think that uh, I, I would be a little bit not less trusting in humanity, but I think I, I would go back and tell my young self to, uh, to make sure that, um, that you're getting varied advice. Never put all your eggs in one basket um, and, and get lots of different opinions um, from, from people that you trust and, uh, and never put all your faith in, in, uh, in one approach or one business deal or, or one perspective. Um, I think that, uh, that being able to surround yourself by people that tell you no, um, and surround yourself by, by people who, um, who have differing perspectives is really, really important. Um, and it can help alleviate and, and help you to dodge a couple of, uh, of challenges in life that, that just occur when, you know, you, you listen to the wrong person or the wrong people and take their bad advice and engage in, in something that gets you into trouble. Um, and, uh, um, you know, that's hard for people to do. It's hard to this day. It's always really important. We always talk to our staff and our team and be like, you know, new people that come on. It's like, this is not an echo chamber. If you've got an issue, you've got a problem. Um, tell us now, if you have a problem, we also have a saying, there's no such thing as problems, only solutions. Mm. So don't come to me with a problem. Come to me with a solution to that problem, mm. but come to me. Yeah. And um, this is, this, you know, we, we need dissension. We need different perspectives. We need, uh, we need that um, or else we can get into trouble. So I think uh, that would be my number one advice to a, a young self. I love it. And, and I like, I love that idea of, um, you know, we all have unique perspectives and I think sometimes we're afraid to share because we do have a, a different opinion or a different perspective. And it's like, that's actually, that's a great thing. Um, because we're meant to share all of our differing opinions and perspectives and then figure out a way to collaborate, to come up with the solutions. So um, you know, yeah, I learned a long time ago, you know, the old legal thing says, you know, a good, a good deal is one where both parties feel like they've given, they've had to give something and neither party is fully satisfied. Uh, um, cool. and, uh, uh, that's a good kind of, I wish Congress could, uh, could apply that lesson a little bit more. And I think a lot of, you know, people in this country today and people around the world have become so dogmatic and live in these echo chambers of, of, of media and news and perspective. Um, and it's leading to a lot of problems for us all. Um, you know, when I, when I see politicians who are dogmatically opposed to any collaboration with the opposite side, um, and then nothing gets done, and some voters, their answer to that is to vote in people that are even more unwilling to compromise. Mm -hmm. I really scratch my head and start to think, you know, everybody's complaining about how Congress can't work. And then we keep voting these people who won't, won't compromise into office. What do we expect? Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, we, we have descended into this sense of I'm right and you're wrong, no matter what that, um, that is crippling our democracy, um, with huge impacts socially, environmentally, et cetera. So I think we could all use a little bit more understanding. We could all use a little bit more compromise. Um, and we'd all be a lot better off if, uh, if we were able to do that. That was The Art of Living Extraordinarily, defined by Philippe Cousteau. His stories definitely gave me a new perspective on our undeniable connectivity around our world, for better or for worse. 
I would love to hear how this episode might have inspired you or left you with any new insights in your own life. And if you liked what you heard, please click subscribe so you can hear more. And a rating is always appreciated too. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time.